Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you once again for bringing us here. Um, we pray that you would please be with us and that you would give us all understanding of your creation. And we ask that your spirit would be with us today and that your angels would be here with us. And we, ask, uh, we pray asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I have, I have in here the phosphorus. Um, well, I probably, I should have thrown mycorrhizae in there. I'm going to talk a little bit more about mycorrhizae. But really, we're going to look at phosphorus cycle mostly. And if we've got time, I'll get into the sulfur cycle. I don't know that we're going to be able to talk about sulfur, but we'll give it a try. So I want to get back to, uh, I read this statement earlier. The, um, the anion exchange capacity. Now this is a, oh, I'm sorry, this, this, this um, image that you're looking at right now is the image of, a of the phosphorus cycle. It's like the nitrogen cycle, but, uh, and every single nutrient has essentially a, 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 you can find on the internet something similar to this. And it talks about uh, the different cycles of those nutrients. I usually, I decided to focus really on the anions for these presentations. I didn't really get into the cations, mostly because they've talked about it quite a bit here. So I wanted to give you guys the opportunity to hear something about the anions. So that's why I chose nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. And then uh, I talked about the, uh, the biology that regulates them and then mycorrhizae. Now mycorrhizae is most uh, respected for uh, phosphorus because of its capacity to pull phosphorus out of uh, uh, the mineral non-labile, which means it's a mineral fractions, a, a parent material. It's in some sort of form that is not plant available. Uh, it has the enzymes and the uh, uh, genetics to be able to actually, essentially mine that phosphorus out of those, out of those minerals, as well as other minerals too. But um, phosphorus is the one that uh, we're going to give attention to uh, uh, this afternoon. So this is, spreadsheet here is very similar to... Uh, to the one we saw with the nitrogen cycle. Uh, the only real big significant difference here is that phosphorus, uh, it doesn't have different uh, react, uh, oxidation states as uh, nitrogen or sulfur. And um, it also, there is a tremendous amount of mystery as to what organisms really regulate and move phosphorus, making it available, making it unavailable. Um, you know, I, I wish that I had more information to give you, but I don't. Um, I know of a couple, I'll share those with you, but really, uh, phosphorus is a very tricky one. Uh, it's probably the most difficult nutrient to manage, um, in, especially in organic when we're not turning to the synthetic forms of phosphorus. It's the most difficult nutrient, uh, I believe, to manage um, in, our, in our agro ecosystems. So, uh, Again, we have crop harvest is like any in nutrient, crop harvest is going to be a method of removal. Uh, you have atmospheric disposition and dust and things like that, but that's very minimal for the actual amount of phosphorus it would bring into your, into your soil. You have mineral fertilizers, which, you know, things like rock phosphates uh, is not necessarily what it means, but you could put that into that category. But I think they're looking more as to, uh, as to like uh, the synthetic forms that you, you can buy in fertilizer bags. Uh, primary minerals, uh, apatite is one of the main uh, minerals that you'll find in the soil that uh, contains um, uh, phosphorus and it makes several different bonds. I'll show you what some of the different apatites are later in a different slide. Uh, we have mineral surfaces, uh, clays, irons, and aluminum oxides can, can exchange phosphorus. And another one of the reasons I'll, uh, 
uh, to be real mindful of how, what type of uh, phosphorus additions you're making and how that will ultimately affect your uh, cation exchange capacity. Uh, it, it requires some uh, retention there. You have secondary compounds like calcium phosphorus, uh, iron phosphorus, magnesium phosphorus, and aluminum phosphorus. You have soluble phosphorus, which is the only form that's actually available to the plants is orthophosphate. That's the only type that the plants will actually absorb. Uh, there might be a few species out there that will take something different, but for the most part, practically all your plants are going to be taking orthophosphate. Uh, then we have organic phosphorus, which is microbial plant residues and humus. So we're talking about plant tissues that are breaking down and are being worked upon by microorganisms to make that phosphorus available to the plant. Uh, animal manures and biosolids are forms of input as well as plant residues. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it. It's really uh, it, it losses. You, for losses, you have plant uptake, you have some leaching, but it's usually minor. The only time you ever really get any type of serious leaching uh, of phosphorus is when you've put way too much down. If there's just way too much phosphorus in the soil, you will see some leaching of phosphorus. With uh, runoff and erosion, again, it's the same principles. You're getting way too much down or you're not, you're not practicing some type of uh, soil health that would help to reduce erosion. That's one of the methods, but um, usually uh, erosion is, and occasionally leaching is blamed for phosphorus uh, uh, contamination in, into lakes and streams and, and which ultimately leads to eutrophication and the green algae that grows there. Most of that I have heard being blamed to erosion of soils uh, that have had too much phosphorus applied on the surface, surface applied phosphorus. Uh, so we're going to move on, let's see here, to, oh yes, I'm sorry, I wanted to mention one more thing. We talked, I wanted to just bring this back up again. We talked about the, uh, uh, I, I read this earlier, I won't read the entire statement. I'll just quote this again, uh, quoting uh, William Albrecht in the soil management. He says, we usually associate the inorganic nutrients, calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, iron, aluminum, zinc, copper, cobalt, manganese, and others with positive ionic characteristics. Uh, with the soil's colloidal humus clay fraction of the uh, opposite. Of the opposite negative electrical charge, the essential nutrient elements, namely nitrogen, sulfur, and phosphorus, boron, chlorine, and iodine, molybdenum, and others, were empirically associated with the organic matter of the soil. So the way that we're really looking at how much of those anions are in the soil and what we can expect to become available to the plants throughout the growing season is by looking at how much is actually in the organic matter in your soil that is biologically active. That's essentially, I hope that that made sense to people. I, I really wanted to drive that point home because that's probably right now the best way that we can give you an estimate of how much phosphorus you can expect to find available in your soils. Uh, I put this up here again as another example of roots and uh, clay colloids. We see um, uh, just a reminder that uh, most of our cations come from that, but when our phosphorus is um, in, in excess, we have a tendency to destroy some of these colloids. Now this is right here is an example of clay. I wanted to, um, I wanted to share with you guys exactly what these clay colloids are. So we're looking at this right here. This is a sheet of different types of clays. You see kaolinite, you see ver uh, vermiculite, you see smectite and clarite. Uh, these clays are formed of tetrahedral and octahedral sheets, uh, which you see the, uh, the oxygen silicone on the top, and then you see the uh, oxygen hydroxyl aluminum on the right, and the uh, silicone oxygen is your tetrahedral and your aluminum uh, oxygen is your octahedral. And these sheets come together. These sheets uh, were formed, uh, or at least as believed, well, they were formed during creation, essentially, and as some of these rocks have weathered off and mineralized, they uh, uh, have different charges associated with them. 
particularly, uh, and they formed clay. So inside the middle is aluminum. And what dictates whether or not any given clay, whether it's bentonite clay, Mount Marillonite clay, uh, kaolinite clay, or whatever type of clay it is, what dictates its charge is going to be isomorphic substitution of aluminum in the center of it. And what that means is that you have an aluminum particle that is replaced with something like uh, magnesium or uh, iron, uh, which are the two most probable ones. And what that does is that it gives you a net charge on that clay colloid and it actually, or on that clay, I'm sorry, making it uh, negatively charged and it can then bond cations and get that cation exchange capacity that, uh, you, that you've heard spoken about uh, several times out here now. This is a uh, helium electron microscope image of clay. Oh, it didn't come up. Okay, so you can't really see it there, but from about right here, the top, the bottom left corner, to something like right here is a uh, mic micrometer. So what you're looking at in these clay images, uh, you're talking about nanometers. Some of the stuff is actually measured in angstroms. It's so small. Uh, clay is very, very, very small. So the fact that it's holding one element of any given nutrient is, um, is because it's so small. We're down at the nanometers and uh, angstrom levels of what you're actually seeing, these crystals that look like uh, a stack of coins that kind of have fallen over. Uh, but that's essentially what uh, clay colloids look like in a microscope. Um, they do have some anion exchange capacity. You don't hear a lot about anion exchange capacity. Why? Because it's relatively insignificant. There's not hardly any. And, uh, associated with the colloid, that is. There's not hardly any anion exchange capacity associated with the clay colloids in our soils, and that's, uh, or any soils. And that's why you don't hear a whole lot about that, and you don't hear uh, a lot about looking for those or trying to pull those nutrients off of the uh, colloid in order to measure them because there's really not anything there. Uh, and most, yeah, there's, uh, I think we've already known, some of you know, expressed in moles of equivalent uh, negative charge per unit weight. But, um, okay, so this is, this is one that, to me, I, I had a hard time wrapping this around my head. Um, and you start to really get into some of the hairy stuff. When you start reading some of the literature and they talk about uh, some of the things that I believe you need to understand in order to be able to apply William Albrecht's principles of soil balancing are oftentimes really confused in the, confusing in the literature. Uh, the reason why I believe it's confusing, it's all really in the wording. And the reason why I believe the wording is so confusing is because it's just, it's wisdom that Satan works hard to hide. Plain and simple. Um, and the way that he does it is really simple. It's with wording, it's semantics. We're going to play with wording and we're going to change things around and how we're going to use things and it makes it difficult. So when you're reading any literature in soil science textbooks um, and they start talking about cation exchange capacity, it has quite a number of different definitions. Um, and you almost really need to understand and look at all the, uh, all the context to take it into uh, account. So uh, what I'll share with you is that a lot of the times when they talk about cation exchange capacity, they're talking just about calcium, magnesium, and potassium, and that's usually it. Um, so they say, well, how much, soil does, how much calcium, magnesium, and potassium can this soil hold? 
And they'll figure out what that is, and they'll say, well, that's a cation exchange capacity. Uh, I strongly disagree with that. Um, and then they'll come back and tell you that you have a negative, uh, you have a pH-dependent charge. In other words, what they're saying is that as your pH changes, uh, your cation exchange capacity changes. That whether it really changes or what we're really looking at is a change in our uh, um, essentially base saturation of hydrogen making more of the clay colloid available to other cations is really the argument. So when you read the literature, I'm just giving you a warning to be mindful of these things, uh, that, there is a, that you can get yourself confused real quick. And I've spoken with uh, you know, graduate and undergraduate students and uh, professors even, uh, soil science, and uh, when I start asking and I start talking about these things, even they're confused. Uh, so you know, just understand the literature can be difficult sometimes. That's the main driving point. But when we look at the positive charging, uh, there definitely is a, a definitive uh, change in the charge of clay colloids associated with pHs. However, uh, unfortunately, the numbers are not there for the bottom. That variation in positive anion exchange capacity is not usually found unless your soil is like, has pHs less than 5. And uh, you don't usually ever want your soil to be that acidic. Well, sometimes uh, I think the very top of this, if you saw this all the way over here, you're looking at a pH of 2 to 3. Um, you're not ever going to grow anything in a pH of 2 to 3. So, uh, yeah, you won't see those conditions. But, uh, and if you go all the way to the right, where you see that the negative charge is uh, the highest and the positive charge is the lowest, that's usually around a pH of 7, a little bit closer to what you can expect to be dealing with. So the point I'm trying to drive home with this image is that, uh, yeah, you're not going to have any anion exchange capacity if you've got your, your, your chemistry balance and your pH is anywhere near where it, it should be. You're, you're going to be nowhere near it. So we've got to start asking the question to ourselves, then, which was asked in the beginning that I read from Albrecht, is what exactly then is anion exchange capacity? Is there an anion exchange capacity? And how do we manage these nutrients? What is going on? Where are they? Because we know that somehow they're getting into the plant. Why? Because we have a crop. But how did they get there? Where were they? How do we measure this? And how can we anticipate what is there? Um, I, wanted, I want to bring this back. I shared this earlier when somebody asked the question. Exodus chapter, five, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6, we remember God is a jealous God. He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. Where, where is this in soil science? I see this as, again, as Albrecht said, it's the organic matter that is associated with the soil and where your anions are hiding, essentially. This is an image of cumulative, ava cumulative available nitrogen from an organic source. So this says, year one, we'll say that that box on the top represents uh, any given number of organic matter addition from some external source. Uh, so in this example, we'll su we'll, I'll suggest that this is... Uh, um, maybe a, a thousand pounds to the acre of alfalfa pellets. Uh, and I'm just making this up. So uh, we'll say that uh, the blue portion of that box is uh, available nitrogen that we'll find inside, or, or the nitrogen that is, that is inside those uh, plant tissues. The rest is going to be other nutrients and, and carbon mostly. That's year one, you make that application. 
In year two, we're going to make that same application and we're going to continue this for five years. But what happens is that if you make another application in year two, you have lost a significant amount of what you added in year one because it has been broken down by microorganisms. The nutrients that will compose those, those plant tissues have now been made available to the plants, were utilized by those plants, and uh, have gone to other, other systems that has, has changed. But what is left there is still a portion of what was there before. In other words, a portion of the nutrients of that alfalfa pellets that you added in year one. So you move to year three and you see the similar scenario. Now you're looking at a year three uh, addition plus what was left over from year two and what was left over from year one. And as you start going through the graph and you see year five, year, uh, year four, year five, et cetera, et cetera, you can see how a portion is being added to each year. Now, why do I say the sins of the father? Why do I make that application of, uh, that we find in the, in the uh, second commandment in Exodus and I try to apply it to this? The reason why I do that and then tie it together with anion exchange capacities because when we start looking, if some of you have attended uh, Bob Gregory's or uh, Whitmar McConnell's classes in the previous years, they talked a lot about soil mineral balancing and what additions you make, what, you know, how much of any given nutrient you should have et cetera, et cetera. And we start really looking at what's in the colloid and what's uh, uh, not, uh, not immediately available, but, uh, or not uh, immediately available, but will become available to plants, uh, the plants while the, uh, during the growing season. Uh, and you start, you can see, you can envision if you have, if you've been in these classes, this is why I kind of say this one was really for the advanced folks, but if you've been in those classes, you can think of that portion, a certain portion of calcium, a certain portion of magnesium, et cetera, et cetera, and you can assign a certain percentage or a certain volume that should be in the soil. Now, when we start looking at anion exchange capacity, if we imagine that somehow we could do the same, somehow we can take those anions and hold them in the soil because there's no other way to hold it in the soil. Otherwise, it would leach out or it would leave as a gas, as we saw in the previous uh, nitrogen cycle charts and phosphorus cycle charts. And I'll show you another one for the sulfur cycle. But you can see how these nutrients will leave your system, your agroecosystem. They'll go one way or another, they'll leave. So really, God had to design some way that he could say, look, these nutrients are negatively charged. We need them in the plants. But how do we leave them in the soil in a method that the plants can use when they utilize when they want them? And that's where I say that this is the anion exchange or the other anion exchange capacity, because what is happening here is that these nutrients are locked up in plant tissues and that's how they stay in the soil. Now, to change that, to change that balancing, it's not as easy as it is with cation exchange capacity. See, I can just go out and buy a bunch of lime and I can fix my calcium or I can go buy Epsom salt and I can fix my magnesium if I want to do that. Uh, and I can get some pretty quick results if I really want to do it that way. But with anion exchange capacity, if we were going to call it that, uh, and, and what we can expect, it's not so easy. Now we're looking at the sins of our fathers. We're looking at the previous generations. If you grew a crop and the crop was deficient in any nutrient, we'll just pretend now that we start in year one at the very top. And we'll say that that is a nitrogen deficient crop. And we'll say that the crop only got maybe 20 pounds of nitrogen. And I don't know, we can say maybe it's corn, right? We'll say corn, we're just going to grow corn again and again and again in the same piece of ground, and we're not going to put any nitrogen additions. Uh, what's going to happen over the years is that those plant tissues are going to reflect those deficiencies. And they will also reflect excesses.
And if we begin to look at our organic matter and we want to uh, attribute to it any particular uh, portion uh, or percentage of or some type of value and say, well, this organic matter has a certain amount of nitrogen or has a certain amount of phosphorus uh, or a certain amount of sulfur or boron, etc., then um, you really got to look at what was there to begin with. And if we don't know what was there to begin with, we don't know what's going to be there now. So when we start trying to turn your soil around, the point you got to bring home here is that it's going to take several years. It's not going to happen overnight to get these things right. Uh, you can make additions of boron and many other nutrients, but phosphorus becomes the one that is most difficult because when you add it to the soil, it doesn't usually become immediately plant available. It takes time for those things to become available. Psalms chapter 11 verse 3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is the foundations that I, that I apply this to, which is the soil. It's not just the crops, but it's, uh, it's, the, uh, it, it's, the, it's the different nutrients that we, that, we'll, that we are changing in there. I talked about phosphorus and how if we put too much phosphorus in the ground, what happens is that phosphate will come up to that clay colloid and it will actually bond with that colloid, forming an insoluble bond that is almost impossible to break and it reduces your cation exchange capacity. And this is a permanent reduction that cannot be changed. At least it is not believed that it can be changed. So when we, get ex when we put excessive amounts of phosphorus in that, to such a point that we begin to destroy our colloids in the soil, uh, we are destroying our foundations. We're destroying the soil's capacity to be productive. It's very, very important that you not over-fertilize, over-apply phosphorus. I think I had that slide out of place, I'm sorry. Uh, here's another image I shared with you guys before. This image here is of uh, organic phosphorus. And uh, you're looking at a root hair with some mycorrhizae. And then you're looking at what is going on with this organic uh, uh, phosphorus. And you see, again, enzymes being excreted from the root hair. They're breaking down that organic matter. They're making the, uh, the enzymes is actually what doing it, not, not, not the phosphorus itself. And it's making some of these nutrients available. This is, in a nutshell, what is going on. It, it seems, I don't know, some of, for me, I'm fascinated by it. Maybe not everybody else is. But I'm very fascinated with how these things work and how nutrients are made available and how they're taken out of these different pools and uh, moved around in the plant. This is some more white page. Uh, this kind of gets a little boring for some of you guys. But essentially what you're looking at is a phenolic compound, a carbon ring structure with nitrophenylophosphate on it. And the enzymes that can be excreted essentially will break these bonds, which is bond with, along with water, and you end up with just uh, nitrophenol. It's, it, this is happening not just with this, but with practically every single carbon, a complex uh, uh, carbon that you can find in the soil. And uh, organisms are doing this. And it seems rather, um, rather complicated, but you don't really have to understand all the organic chemistry in order to get a good understanding of those things. Uh, sulfur is another thing that can actually, uh, that can actually break loose or uh, unlock phosphorus in the soil. Uh, like I shared with you earlier, there's only one species of bacteria that is known to break these strong bonds that phosphorus forms. And this species is Bacillus megatherium. Uh, they believe that there might be some other ones out there, but... Again, they don't know. 
this species is also responsible for the production of B12, vitamin B12 in the soil. Uh, so uh, I know that that requires cobalt, but one of the other things it also requires is phosphorus. So it's really interesting where this B12 can come from. Let me go back to this slide. Uh, I'm getting to the part of this presentation where my slides were not so well put together because <laughs> I had so much to present on. But um, we'll, we'll work around it. Okay, sulfur in the form of hydrogen sulfide can chelate or orthophosphate mineralizing phosphorus. Now, there is a ton of species of, of, uh, of uh, sulfur uh, metabolizing or reducing uh, organisms that can work with sulfur. But every time these organisms are excreting and they're working, oftentimes they will actually uh, also uh, make phosphorus available because phosphorus will form bonds with calcium and iron and uh, uh, molybdenate and other such organisms that... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, phosphorus will bond with uh, these, and then uh, when sulfur comes into play, it's actually not looking for the phosphorus, it's looking for the cation that has bonded to the phosphorus. So when it comes in and it takes the chelates, it breaks those bonds, and it brings those, those nutrients out, it also makes phosphorus available. So having that, having that uh, uh, those sulfur metabolizing organisms in your soil, as well as the sulfur that is necessary to, to push those processes, requires, uh, 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 will also benefit your phosphorus. So it's kind of interesting to note because you read in some of the literature of certain people that, um, well, the number that I keep seeing coming up over and over again for whatever it's worth is that whatever phosphorus you have, you should have one-third sulfur. So if you've got 3,000 pounds to the acre of phosphorus, you should have 1,000 pounds of sulfur. That's a number that I have seen thrown around quite a bit. Um, maybe some of you guys have seen other numbers that were different. But uh, you see that connection again, uh, like I made with potassium and sodium. You know, these things that where we talk about ratios of certain nutrients in the soil, the biology to support those theories is there. The science to support that theory is there. We just have to dig in there and find it. And um, to actually put all these pieces of the puzzle together is oftentimes not, not done by, uh, because these things are just, I, I don't know, these things are just not, they just don't come up. I, I don't know, maybe the Lord is hiding it. I, I don't know what it is. Um, I've got some ideas, but I really won't go there. Um, We'll just keep carrying along, I think. Okay, I got that. Oh, yes, one more thing is that these organisms, uh, sulfur metabolizing organisms, are usually dominant in uh, waterlogged soils. So it's kind of interesting because I think about that, and then I think about before the flood there was never any rain. And it really just baffles me. I think, man, how did the soil, how did this happen? How, you had all these crops. What's going on there? Um... Uh, how do these things work? I, uh, I think about it, and I, and I realize that, I don't know, God had this thing designed, and he had it right. You know, I'm just trying to figure out his design. But, uh, and, and these are just ideas, so you, you, can, you don't have to believe what, I, what I'm about to say. That whole part is just my own opinion, so um, I, I don't know what value it is. But I have, I, I su I'm suggesting that when, prior to the flood, when there was no rain, that the actual, it says that the, the, the ground, the, the firmament, the moisture would just come up and, and it would just leave. And it, would, it was almost like the earth breathed and it never rained. And uh, that's really strange. But when I think about that, I, I can see how that, that actually would have regulated the uh, nutrients in the soil. And uh, ma making certain things available and certain things unavailable. And, and just changing things and feeding plants at, uh, that existed at that time uh, before the flood. And possibly had something to do with... Uh, is the, how big those plants were and how long those people lived. 
But again, those are just uh, my ideas that I kick around. Uh, I talked about Bacillus uh, megatherium. Uh, so this is an example of uh, phosphorus. Um, okay, well, I guess some of you might be able to make this out, but the center, the bar in the center is an example of a root hair. Um, and then we're looking at the depletion of phosphorus in the immediate rhizosphere and the rhizoplane. Uh, and then we're comparing that to the phosphorus that is consumed uh, by a similar vein with our muscular uh, mycorrhizae. And what you see is that in the mycorrhizae inoculated uh, uh, root hair, a lot more of the, of the phosphorus in that uh, general area has been consumed. In other words, made available to the plant. These are some of the, the, the benefits of mycorrhizae. I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of be going right back into mycorrhizae again, but um, before I do that, I, I copied this. I didn't copy over quite right, but uh, these are some of the different uh, appetites that can form with phosphorus. Uh, these are all essentially non-labile mineral forms of phosphorus. Uh, and what we have here is floral ap uh, floral appetite, which is calcium phosphorus with fluorine at the end. I'm, uh, hydroxy appetite, which is calcium phosphate. And then you have tricalcium phosphate, which uh, again is uh, calcium 3 instead of calcium 5 phosphate. And then you have ver vericite, which is aluminum phosphate. Then you have stringite, which is iron phosphate. Uh, these are all forms of phosphorus that can form in the soil when you add uh, synthetic forms of phosphorus and they react with nutrients in the, uh, other cations in the soil. Uh, the chart underneath is probably, uh, I don't know, it's probably too, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I guess I'll give it a stab. We'll see if we can get this figured out. So what we're looking at is pH here. And you're looking at the log of the rate at which these uh, rocks will either form or, or break bonds. So what we're seeing here is based off of the pH, whether it be, and this is not the bulk pH, this is going to be the pH in the uh, actual environment or wherever this particle is. Um, the pH in that environment heavily dictates what uh, will actually form and what will become available. Uh, I'll, I guess I could probably say that much with relative uh, strength. And then if we look at the top, it talks about the solubility product and which ones are most likely to form and which ones are least likely to form. And um, it's just, again, it's real. We can see that um, tricalcium phosphate is probably going to be the first uh, one to form in your soil if you start to add synthetic forms of phosphorus and then uh, some type of calcium carbonate uh, along with it you know, or around the same time and we start actually locking up our phosphorus and our calcium. Uh, I shared, uh, I believe I shared this image already, endo and ectomycorrhizae, and how it works. And here's the second image of um, mycorrhizae. Now, I want to start talking a little bit about mycorrhizae here because um, it's so important to understand <clears throat> that mycorrhizae plays a huge role in pulling nitrogen out of, uh, sorry, phosphorus out of the soil. And um, you know, there's, again, I'm hoping that I can maybe give you a slight understanding of the, of the science behind how mycorrhizae works. But uh, what we're looking at here is endomycorrhizae and ectomycorrhizae and how they form. This, this image is much better than the other one. I, I actually found this one uh, over the lunch break because uh, the other one was kind of, uh, I don't know, it's kind of blurry. It's hard to really get anything out of it. Uh, so what we're seeing here in the uh, endomycorrhizae, you see how uh, vesicles form inside the cells like I was talking about. Uh, we have uh, 
chlamydospores, which are actually spores to form more mycorrhizae uh, colonies, external feeding hyphae, which are here on the outside, which will actually reach out and pull more nutrients in. Uh, the arbuscular internal hyphae is inside the cells of the uh, root. And this is where uh, nutrients are actually exchanged, where the, the, the fungus will receive uh, photosynthates or sugar, and then uh, it'll give in return different uh, nutrients that the plant is looking for. Um, again, uh, and then of course we look over on the other side and it's more of the same as I explained before. And I don't believe they go down to the xylem. So I want to talk about mycorrhizae and fungal uh, pathogens and how they inoculate. So right now what I'm actually, I took these slides out of a, uh, a plant pathology uh, discussion and um, a presentation here. And we're going to look at uh, what does it really take? You know, you, you, okay, so what does it take to actually, uh, for these species to inoculate, to actually get into the root and to, and to get going and form? So the first thing that we're going to see here is, uh, no, hold on here. Okay. The first thing that happens here is the, uh, the fungal pathogen is the pre-infection stage. This is the, uh, this is the point where you have uh, actual fungal spore arriving near or adjacent to, uh, usually it's going to be somewhere in the rhizoplane. Uh, not always, I think, it could, I think it could probably get away with it, but I believe that it's predominantly in the rhizoplane because it is at that point where uh, it looks for certain uh, enzymes from the cells to be excreted that will actually generate, or, or I'm sorry, uh, initiate uh, the germination of those fungal spores. Once germination goes, a uh, germ tube begins to search for a place where it can actually penetrate the cells. And then uh, the apressorium is formed inside those cells, uh, or, or it's formed outside of the cell, I'm sorry, and then a penetration peg is formed which will actually eventually penetrate the cells, uh, get through the cell walls, get through the cell membrane, form a hostorium, for ultimately forming a hostorium here at what is referred to as the post-infection stage. Uh, this is the same with mycorrhizae as it is with, you know, uh, late blight or uh, powdery mildew or some of these other uh, uh, fungals. It's, they're all funguses, so they all operate relatively the same. Uh, the taxon formation, a necro, uh, if it's a necrotroph, it'll do that. Suppression of host defenses. Um, this is actually, if it's a pathogen, it's at that point where it starts to excrete uh, certain enzymes that will begin to shut down the uh, immune system of the cells from that plant. And uh, if, it has, if the plant has a genetic resistance to it, it will sense those enzymes and it'll actually release other enzymes to stop those enzymes. It's really interesting how that works. Uh, and then, of course, it'll signal that to the rest of the, uh, uh, of the plant. And that particular cell would go through programmed cell death. And uh, it's what is also referred to as hypersensitive response. And that part of the plant will actually die. Just, that, just those cells will sacrifice themselves and die so that the fungal organism will die. And then the, 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 the plant actually won't be uh, hit with that pathogen, which is really interesting. Um, I want to make sure it's done. Okay. So the next, so we're going to break down here. We're going to go to step one here. We're looking at fungi uh, getting inside the plant. How do these things get inside the plant? So right now, this again is based off of pathogens and uh, not necessarily uh, uh, things like mycorrhizae, but they work the same way. So the fungi, the fungi host entry is active, forceful penetration or a wound or natural opening. What that means is the plant does not want it initially but the fungal pathogen has the capacity to actually get there forcefully. It will, um, it, yeah, okay, you can see those pictures. You can see how, let's see if I can do it from this side. 
you have your fungal spore on the top here, uh, and that's the penetration peg that comes down and starts getting in between those cells. So for a lot of different uh, pathogens, if we have good strong cell, cells in the roots, uh, it would be difficult to actually break those bonds. And there are certain nutrients that are needed in the soil, copper is one of them in particular, that helps to prevent the germination of those germ tubes. Uh, because those, I, I don't understand the exact method for it, but I just, I just read this in some literature and I hear it said, but it actually uh, is somehow is necessary for the releasing of certain uh, enzymatic activities that will prevent the uh, uh, germination of these fungal spores. Once they do get off and say we don't have that and they want to now penetrate through these cell walls and start uh, forming uh, their uh, relationships there, the cell walls need to be tightly bonded. Remember, again, calcium is responsible for bonding those cell walls. If you're deficient in calcium, you're going to have very weak cells, and uh, your root diseases like pythium and uh, other ones, uh, other root rots, and will come in and they will destroy your root system, and they'll do it in a hurry. Uh, you also have stomata infection. That's on the leaf stems for other pathogens. This is not really so much uh, related to mycorrhizae. It's more uh, for powdery mildew and other uh, foliar uh, fungal diseases that you would deal with above surface and not below the surface. Uh, here's another more colorful image that you can see. Uh, essentially, this is, you know, they don't, they're not really triangular shaped, but it's supposed to give you an idea of how this is a fungal spore uh, when the conditions are right in the plant and the spore will germinate. Uh, it'll send out uh, alexins. It's like a toolbox with a bunch of different tools, which will go outside and say, okay, this is what we need. These are the enzymes we need to break down the cell walls, uh, break down the cuticles, and uh, get into where we're going. Once those cuticles are, are broken, then the penetration peg goes through, and it, start to, it starts to work its way through down into the cells. And this is a... Well, it didn't go forward, did it? This is structure and components of the cell cuticle. Okay. All right, here we go. So this on the top is the image of the... Uh, uh, I believe this is electron microscope image of a fungal spore uh, penetration peg actually going in into uh, penetrating into a, a, a plant cell. And then underneath it is an artistic image of the same thing. The germ tube takes off, the apressorium is formed, and then the penetration peg works its way through the cell walls and ultimately getting down into the cells. It's the same, again, whether it's mycorrhizae or if it's a blight or some other thing. Uh, Okay, so here we have, let's see, all, all pathogen groups make effectors, and these effectors are what signal if a plant has genetic resistance to a certain pathogen, these effectors are what they use to, or what they look for. And when they find these things is when they take off and um, start uh, actually triggering different processes in their immune system. Um, so when mycorrhizae releases effectors, this is how it communicates to the plant saying, hi, I'm your buddy, so-and-so, mycorrhizae, as opposed to, hi, I'm a, I'm a phytophthorum or I am some other, you know, uh, disease that I'm here to kill you. <laughs> there is some communication there. It's, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, I mean, I just don't understand how people look at this and conclude that it, it was all, it all just evolved. It's, it's too complex. I mean, and it really is a cat and mouse game because when you start breeding for, uh, you start breeding through natural, uh, or I'm sorry, through artificial selection, I'm sorry. Uh, another term, I, another thing I'd like to say is that um, unfortunately the, 
the atheists really took the scientific community, they ran off and they named everything. So everything is based off of you know, that way of thinking. So the scientific terminology that I unfortunately have to use uh, sometimes might seem like I believe in that stuff, but I, I, can, I don't believe in that stuff, but I don't know how else to communicate it because there is no real Christian vocabulary for communicating some of these scientific things. So I, I ask that you bear with me on that. But anyhow, through the process of, of, of they, they say through the process of natural selection, certain things happen, but through artificial selection, which is humans coming in and selecting certain species, is how they have bred gen, uh, uh, genetic resistance to a lot of different pathogens in a, in a lot of different crops. Uh, so when you start talking about, you know, this particular species has uh, genetic resistance, we can say tomato mosaic virus or... Uh, Fusarium, Fusarium oxysporum, which is Fusarium wilt. Uh, again, this happens because it has the capacity to express the genes or to, or, or to actually know which effectors are hitting that plant and, and hitting those cells when it's uh, invaded by those pathogens. Uh, so this is pretty interesting, whether that pathogen is bacterium, whether it's fungus or a nemicete, or whether it's a nematode. Uh, either way, it works the same. Um, now here we're looking at the same thing. This is now all the way, the penetration peg has come through. Now it's, it went through the cell walls, it went through the cuticle. If it has some type of genetic resistance, another tool that a plant has or that the cells has, has to prevent these hostoriums uh, from forming when the penetration peg comes through is by forming a pupilla, which is this section that you see down here, uh, which separates the cell membranes from the cell walls. And uh, that, it's supposed to be, a, I believe it's a high carbon, substance that is actually, is actually supposed to somehow slow down or stop that, that penetration peg from coming down. But uh, if it makes it through that, uh, it will form a hostorium. This hostorium is inside the mem cell membrane. So this is actually inside the cell. So it's inside that cell of whatever that host species is where, these, where this type of chemistry or this biology is happening. Um, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, stop here and we're going to finish off. Uh, I guess we can leave. Uh, all right, we'll leave a good 10 minutes for uh, questions and answers if anybody has any. Just real quick. Yeah. Can you expand? Okay, the question was asked, can I expand on the similarities between the nutrient calcium and getting it into the plant and what it would affect as well as um, Jesus, uh, or Christ, Jesus Christ, and getting that into our hearts and how that affects us spiritually. And uh, what I would, uh, okay, so I mentioned earlier that calcium can only come in the plant through the xylem, through transpiration. If there's no transpiration, it cannot come into the plant. That's the only route that is known for calcium to come in. Um, it's not mobile in the plant. Once it comes in, it starts making bonds, particularly with the cells, and it's fixed. It cannot move. So if it runs out of calcium, it needs to get it all the way from the soil. Um, it can be very difficult to get calcium in the plant. And the reason why is because calcium and phosphorus are two nutrients that do not like to be in an ionic state. In other words, they, it's just the way the science is. These two nutrients will not just sit in the soil as ions by themselves and not do anything. They will bond with something and they form very strong bonds that are hard to break. Uh, usually it's with phosphorus or vice versa, calcium and phosphorus. Usually it's those two going back and forth. Uh, that's why those two are so difficult to manage and why those are the two that are uh, uh, usually uh, the big stressors for growers. So if, um, the similarities is that 
I like to make is, well, again, I was taking a lot of this, what I was just sharing right now, out of plant pathology. If you've got good calcium levels in your plants and in your soils and you manage to get that in there and you haven't blocked it out with potassium, and potassium, by the way, is like candy to a plant. That plant will take all the potassium it can take. Um, and it's kind of like us, you know, we'll, we'll take, uh, oftentimes, you know, we as humans will take everything the world has to offer. And, uh, and if we do that and, and, and we do it in excesses, uh, well, it becomes real difficult for Christ to enter our lives. And it's the same way with calcium and potassium. If potassium comes into the plant in excess because there's no way to really regulate that, uh, it blocks out calcium. Uh, so we've got to be careful with our potassium additions and how we're managing our potassium. Um, once it's in, uh, it really, really is the biggest role that it plays is in cell wall strength. If we've got good, strong cell walls, we'll, we'll, we'll overcome most fungal uh, and bacterial uh, diseases that will affect especially the root system. And um, if we, you know, again, if we have Christ, we'll definitely, definitely uh, protect us from just an army of different things Satan is trying to throw at us. So I keep, I, I keep seeing um, spiritual applications that are real serious between these two nutrients and many other nutrients. Um, I hope that answered your question. Any other questions? Another? Well, the previous, uh, that's not a progression. That's actually how... Uh, a, 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 yeah, it's a de- like a, how a bacteria would enter the cell. Bacteria is usually entered through some type of a wound. But, um, you know, you, you rip a, a root hair or a pest damage or uh, something like that. But um, they can interrupt without that also. There are some species that can. My question is... Okay, excellent question. <laughs> cell suicide is referred to as hypersensitive response. Um, programmed cell death. What that is is... You realize you got a pathogen in you, you shut down and you die. Why? Um, same thing Christ did. He died for us. If that cell dies, the nutrients that were... See, there's not a lot of... You know, they don't have a lot of fat on them. They can't just run the race forever. Uh, they use the nutrients. The pathogens will use nutrients that they have uh, available to them. But if they do not get you know, more nutrients within a certain you know, period of time, eventually they will die. So what happens is, is that those pathogens are entering the cells because they're trying to find the, they're trying to take whatever nutrient is available for them in that cell. And if that cell dies, it cannot, you know, it, it, it cannot do whatever it wants uh, for that particular pathogen. So what happens is, is it essentially starves that pathogen to death. And it's a way of uh, having a, a hypersensitive response. Uh, that cell will usually die, and in some cases the neighboring cells will die as well. So whether it's a fungal, bacterial, viral... Uh, they usually all work uh, relatively the same. The effectors are what trigger programmed cell death. And that's all in the genetic code. And I really have to explain a lot more than that to explain. Yeah. Um, I think he had his hand up first and I can... Okay, go ahead. What is the uh, best source of... Honestly, for me, I believe it's probably going to be... Pota- uh, not potassium, I'm sorry. Uh, compost, because there's so much compo- uh, phosphorus in compost. Uh, but you've got to be real careful with compost because we had a grower that we talked to in uh, Oregon. He grew, he decided to go out and get a bunch of municipal compost uh, from Portland, I think, restaurants in the Portland area. And uh, he knew compost was rich and had all these good things in it, so he decided he was going to grow a crop of basil with it. So he put all these containers full of basil and he planted his, uh, a full of this uh, municipal, restaurant municipal compost and then planted basil in it. Well, the crop grew and it got real yellow, so he thought, well, it must be deficient in nitrogen. So he started putting a bunch of nitrogen on it. It didn't fix the problem. Uh, then he came back and um, he went to go talk with uh, an extension agent somewhere at OSU, 
And then uh, they, they told him, well, just you know, put more nitrogen down. They did. It didn't work. So he said, go talk to this other guy. So he talked to another uh, friend of mine who is also a soil scientist and worked at a farm with me in Oregon. And uh, this is where we were talking about this. And what, what we did is that we decided to take tissue samples and we sent it off. We sent it off. Tissue samples came back and we found that um, the plant was toxic in chlorine, uh, iodine, and sodium. Where do you think that happened? Well, how did that happen? Salting the food. So sometimes that compost, you know, it has a lot of good things to it, but it, it can have some bad things too. You really got to be careful with compost. Uh, in some cases it's good, in some cases it's not. But it's just a fine example on how municipal uh, compost uh, from restaurants could um, negatively affect your crop, especially when you decide to grow it strictly in compost. Um, I got another question over here. Yeah, uh, I have you. Okay, the question is, what about azomite? I've used azomite. I think it's an excellent product, but it's really. In, I need to watch for one thing. I've never had a problem with this, but I, I oftentimes que question it because azomite comes from Utah and it comes from salt areas. But they claim that the sodium is really low in it. Just be cautious with the sodium. Otherwise, it's a great product. Um, I guess over here. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, the thing is that it's queried, it's mined, and uh, it, I mean, it's going to change from day to day. It's just a general, uh, again, but where it's mined from is really, has a lot of salt in that area. So I, I, I don't, I'm not saying it is high on salt, but I, I would just tell you to be cautious because if you notice symptoms of high sodium or anything that where you think sodium is a problem, um, get that azomite tested and figure out if you've got a batch with a lot of sodium in it. Uh, otherwise, it's, I think it's a great product. Okay, the question is, uh, is there a difference between the, I guess, soft rock phosphates, as you say, or synthetic forms of phosphate? And I would say the answer is yes, there's a huge difference. Uh, first off, when you buy these soft rock phosphates, they're calcium phosphate predominantly with some available phosphorus. So I know the Tennessee brown rock phosphate, and I think the Idaho Montana phosphate is something like 20% uh, calcium and 23 or 22% phosphorus, something like that. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers. I could be wrong, uh, not by much if I am. Uh, and then um, anyway, only about 3% of it or so is in the form of a, a orthophosphate, and the rest is in uh, some type of calcium phosphate. And uh, so when you're adding that type of a phosphorus uh, amendment to your soil, it's already bound, bound with calcium. It's not, going to, uh, it's not going to react really with calcium because it's already bonded to calcium. Uh, while if you're going out and you're buying something like uh, 1152, uh, which is your uh, monoammonium phosphate, no, yeah, monoammonium phosphate, um, that's a form of synthetic phosphate that is once it gets dissolved, it's, it's very water soluble. So as soon as you start putting that stuff in water, it starts breaking down, becomes plant available, uh, if you say, but more than just plant available, it wants to react with something. Like I mentioned, it's not just going to sit in the water and uh, you know, cross its legs and wait for a plant or something to come and take it. It's going to find something, usually calcium, and uh, bond to form, uh, as I showed earlier, uh, appetite and uh, some type of cal which is a calcium phosphate. Uh, precipitate, which is what that means, is form a solid, which makes it unplant available. So you pay all this money for this synthetic phosphorus, you put it into the soil, and it usually just reacts with your calcium. So the difference is that it's usually the synthetic phosphorus and the excessive applications of that 
that will affect, negatively affect your, and permanently negatively affect your cation exchange capacity and not the soft rock phosphates? Well, I, I couldn't answer that question because I don't know how much phosphorus was there and I don't really know anything about your soil. And it could be that you're, you made a, a really good decision because there's some soils that are deficient in phosphorus. But I don't, I don't know your soil, so I don't know. I, I think that if I was phosphorus deficient, I would do it the way you did it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. If you add, you know, enough of a, too much of a good thing can be bad. So you can accomplish oh, with rock, soft rock phosphate what you could accomplish with synthetic phosphates. You just have to add a lot more of it down. Um, but yeah, you, you can definitely mess it up too. But I don't think that in the quantities you put down that you would have messed anything up. Yeah, what he said is as you build calcium, it starts, uh, I'm sorry, as you build phosphorus up, it starts to tie stuff up. But um, also, I, I don't know where you got your soils tested. Again, not every laboratory is the same. So, I, I mean, I, I just, I can't really answer much for you without knowing your soil test, where you got it done, how the methods used, the extraction methods used, um, how, how that sample was taken, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of variables. So I, I can't tell you that what you're doing is a bad idea or a good idea. Um, I would need to know more. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, I think it was no, right, oh, in the back. What was the name of the Bacillus, um, Bacillus megatarium. And uh, as well as all your, I'll, I'll show up a list of a whole bunch of sulfur stuff. I've, yeah, sulfur, but there's a lot of sulfur species that are believed that can do the same thing too. Not, not uh, directly, but indirectly. In other words, they're not after the phosphorus, they're after whatever the phosphorus is bonded to. Oh boy, all these hands. <laughs> I'll come over here, then we'll go over there. Well, it can uh, be interesting. Uh, I think it's possible, yes, because you are putting calcium down. And as if, if you have the, a good biology in your garden or your, your soil and you're... Okay, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll repeat what he said. He said he's been using soft rock, uh, soft rock phosphate for several years now, and it seems like it's gotten the calcium up too high in his beds. And um, I'm thinking, yes, that is possible. Um, but I, you know, again, I, I don't know a lot. There's a lot of things I don't know. So, you know, you're, when you ask questions like that, it's real open-ended and I, I can make statements that could be true, could not be true. But the thing is when you're applying it, uh, if you have good biology and that biology is working on that phosphorus and making it available and, um, yeah, it's going to release some calcium. Uh, it's possible. Yes. But is that the direct, is it, is, is it possible there's something else going on? I think that's also possible too. Um, we're going to have to stop here soon because I think we're out of time now. We're hit an hour. Uh, I'll just take one more question and then we'll, we'll take a break. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> a trusted source for Bacillus megatarium. I don't know, but there was a company. Ah, Bob Jorgensen liked using that product. He's the one who gave it to me. Bioplin, I think is what it's called. Nutra Bioplin. What is it? Biofin. There you go. That's it. Nutratech, that's the name of the company, Nutratech. And I believe that it's Bacillus uh, Megatarium, what, that's, what that uses. Bionaturals is the name of the company. I've used that one a few times, and I know when we tried that out in Virginia a couple of times, it, it, it looked like it did a good job, but I mean, I don't know. Okay, we'll go ahead and take a break. Um, we'll meet back up. Let's meet at uh, 420. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.